You're listening to Fence Posts, Foundations for the Christian Life. Fence Posts is a teaching ministry of Pastor Mike Woodruff of Christ Church Lake Forest. Death and Hell. American folk Christianity, the mix of generic spirituality, self-help stories, and mostly forgotten Sunday school lessons that's bouncing around in popular culture, tends to be simplistic and optimistic, especially when it comes to life after death. If you ask a dozen people what the Bible teaches about the subject, you will likely hear, you live, you die, and then you go to heaven where everything's wonderful. Most people get their own cloud. If you were really good, you'd get to be an angel. As you're about to see, the biblical picture is a bit more complicated than that and not as universally cheerful. The live and die part is spot on, but there are a handful of other things in the mix, such as the great white throne judgment, the resurrection and glorification of our body, the return of Christ, and the intermediate state. And, for the record, not everyone makes it to heaven. In fact, Jesus says that the road leading there is narrow, the gate is small, and only a few find it, while the gate is wide and the road is broad that leads to destruction. We're going to continue our study of man by exploring what the Bible has to say about death, judgment, and hell, three remarkably unpopular but vitally important topics. I realize that life is simpler when you avoid thinking about them, but some things are best faced directly, and these fall into that category. In fact, there are at least four reasons why you really need to keep reading. One, you will die. The actuarial tables are pretty clear about this, as is the Bible. Some of us live long lives, others die young. But barring the quick return of Christ, we all will die. And one way or the other, we are all going to meet God. This means that if you spend more time planning a two-week vacation than you do preparing for eternity, you are a fool. Two, Much of what you think about eternity is probably wrong. Most people believe death is natural, this is the land of the living, and that heaven and hell are mystical, ethereal places. The Bible says death is unnatural, we presently dwell in the land of the dying, and heaven and hell are just as real as Chicago and Hong Kong. 3. God tells us what we can expect from eternity and also what He expects from us right now. While it's not possible to have every question answered, the Bible tells us what we need to know in order to prepare for life on the other side. Have you ever thought about how much this information is worth? People pay lots of money for educated guesses about where the market will be next week. Divine insight is able to calm needless fears and direct necessary next steps, all designed to help us face the next 10 billion years. Four, The opportunities you currently enjoy will eventually expire. At some point, exams end. The professor walks back into the room and announces, that's it, time's up, put your pencils down and pass in your papers. A student's work is then collected and graded. In a similar way, one day, God will say, that's it, time's up, stop what you're doing, I'm going to assess your life. At that moment, what we've done, or left undone, will be assessed. And according to the Bible, we are not given any second chances to improve our score after we die. Many people think their future is secure if their 401k is healthy. Others amuse themselves rather than attend to eternal matters. 
A third group insists that ultimate reality will bend to meet their desires. As I've already noted, the Bible calls these people fools. The question is not what we hope comes next. The question is what is true. I do not advocate Christianity because it helps me sleep through the night, because it works, or even because I like it. The truth is, there are aspects of the Christian faith that leave me profoundly unsettled. But I accept what the Bible teaches, including what it teaches about death, judgment, and hell, because I do not believe that I'm the final standard of truth, but that Christ is. Having been persuaded that he is God, I choose to endorse what he taught, believing that to do otherwise would be the height of folly. An overview. As you can already see, the material we are about to turn to, which theologians organize under the title Individual Eschatology, is going to be challenging. In fact, it will be difficult, both because of how emotionally taxing it is to read, but also because it's complicated. In an effort to make what follows as simple as possible, I have provided the following diagram. It shows that at our death, our bodies are temporarily separated from our souls or spirits, our bodies go to the grave, where they turn to dust, while our souls immediately proceed either to the joyous presence of Christ or to the agony and regret of Hades. This period, which is referred to as the intermediate state, ends with the resurrection of our bodies, which occurs at Christ's triumphal return. It is followed in turn by the great white throne judgment, where those who are lost are judged before being sent to hell and where the works of Christ's followers are judged prior to their entrance into heaven. There are a dozen concepts on display here. We are going to work through half of them in this study, beginning where life as we know it ends. Death. As I've already noted, most people avoid thinking about death, their own or that of those they love. But denying our mortality is foolish. As the cliché suggests, Death is one of only two certainties, and although it does not grow worse each time Congress meets, it does grow nearer. We need to face death squarely. This requires that we do so in light of what God teaches. The Bible uses the term death in three different ways. The first is spiritual death, which refers to the alienation from God that resulted from Adam's sin. The second is physical death, which describes the temporary separation of body and soul that occurs when the former stops working. And the third is eternal death, which is spiritual death made permanent. Our initial focus is on the second, physical death, which is what most people think of when they hear the term. It is also a source of some confusion because the Bible describes this kind of death as both an enemy and a friend. Let me explain. Death is an enemy. Scripture frequently describes life's one certainty as a destroyer, both because it robs us of those we love and because it separates our bodies from our souls, leaving us temporarily less than we were created to be. I expect you understand the first use. In fact, many of you are quite familiar with the unspeakable grief death causes, even when we're certain that those who have died have gone to be with Christ. But the second may be a bit confusing especially if you mistakenly believe that our souls view our bodies as a prison cell from which they can't wait to spring free. So let me start by explaining that the Bible does not teach a two-tiered hierarchy, one in which the material world is bad and the spiritual realm is good. That is Plato's worldview, not Paul's. What the Bible teaches is that both body and soul were created good, but are now fallen because of sin. The spirit does not long to be free of the body, 
It longs to be free from sin and to remain united with a sinless body. Paul's letters support this. They make it clear that while he was anxious to die and be with Christ and would quickly choose the life to come over this broken world, his first choice was to avoid death altogether by living until Christ's return. This would allow him to avoid any division of his body and soul. From Paul's perspective, the intermediate state will be wonderful, but will not be as good as heaven, because in heaven we will be whole people. Death can be a friend. In one sense, death is always an enemy, for we were not created to die and only do so because of sin. But Christ's death defeated death on the cross and has promised to completely destroy it. This means that for those of us who have been adopted into the family of God, death has lost its sting. Instead of harming us, it serves as a doorway to Christ. It is in this sense that we say death is a friend. And this is why many of the biblical metaphors for death, such as sleep, departing on a trip, or going home, are positive ones. Of course, saying that death is a friend does not mean that Christians are expected to look forward to the act of dying. After all, that may prove to be quite painful, and even Christ had misgivings about it. It only means that we should long for what comes next. Additionally, we should note that death is not always a doorway to a better world. It is only that for those whose moral debt has been paid. Often it leads to a world that is much worse. This leads us to our third point. The death of those estranged from God marks the end of hope. The one last point I need to make about death is not a happy one, but it's an important one and important that you understand it. While the death of someone who has been forgiven of their sins leads to eternal life, the death of one who remains sin-laden leads to eternal death. That is, the death of an unbeliever leads to a permanent separation from the love of God and entrance into a place of torment. Paul was so distraught at the thought of what awaited his non-believing friends that he wrote, I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race, the people of Israel. In other words, Paul was very willing to suffer horribly in an effort to steer others away from a Christless eternity. We do not ultimately know the state of a person's heart when they die. Perhaps they reached out to God in their final moments and were graciously embraced by his love. But I do not want to do anything to diminish the sense of urgency you should feel about your soul or that of those you love. We need to be right with God and we need to be sharing the story of Christ with others. The Intermediate State the next concept we're going to explore is the intermediate state, that is, the temporary realm where our souls exist between our death and our bodily resurrection. It is a place of joy for the redeemed, but of agony for those who are lost. The Bible does not say a lot about this realm, perhaps because it's not our ultimate goal. So you're excused if you've never heard about it, but it's clearly taught, emerging from the harmonization of three different sets of Scripture— First, those that remind us that our bodies turn to dust. Second, those that teach that our souls go directly into the presence of Christ when we die. And third, those that speak of the eventual resurrection of our bodies at the end of the age. The most complete description of the intermediate state is the account of Lazarus and the rich man recorded in Luke 16. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. 
At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died, and the angel carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried in Hades, where he was in torment. He looked up there and saw Abraham far away, with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. There's a lot to learn from this passage. For instance, we can affirm that we will have the ability to recognize one another after we die, that we go directly to a place of joy or suffering at the time of our death, that the place of joy is not a shadowy waiting room, but a place of great comfort, and that the division between the place of the redeemed and that of the lost is permanent. Most of these points will be developed in future studies. I need to emphasize right now that the intermediate state is not to be confused with two things, soul sleep or purgatory. First, the intermediate state is not a time of soul sleep. Some have taught that when we die, our souls go into a state of unconscious existence until Christ's return. This view is based on the several occasions in which a person who has died is said to have gone to sleep. But while it's true that the dead are sometimes referred to in this way, the account of Lazarus and the rich ruler, to say nothing of several others, make it clear that this is not the case. When Scripture refers to someone who has died as having gone to sleep, it is only speaking metaphorically. Second, the intermediate state is not to be confused with purgatory. Some believe that Christians who die with unconfessed sin are neither good enough for heaven nor bad enough for hell. Therefore, they go to a special place to be purified through their own suffering. This idea, which gained prominence in the Middle Ages, is loosely based on a verse in 2 Maccabees, one of the apocryphal books that are not part of the Protestant Bible. A more detailed explanation of why this view should be rejected will be developed in the next study. At this point, I only want to emphasize that the idea that we need to pay any part of our moral debt is inconsistent with what is taught in Scripture. There we learn that Christ secured our salvation in its entirety and that, quote, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. The Resurrection of Our Bodies the third matter we're going to consider is one that is prominently celebrated in the New Testament, but frequently overlooked by 21st century Christians. It's the resurrection of our body, the belief that we do not remain disembodied souls forever, but become whole people at the time of Christ's return. This shocking idea is actually quite unique to the Christian faith. 
Some worldviews hold that death is the end. Others contend that we survive, but only as ghosts. Still others teach that we come back to earth in another body or that our souls meld into universal oneness. Only the Christian faith teaches that we get our old bodies back after they have been made new and immortal. In other words, some worldviews teach that death makes us less, others that death does not matter, and still others teach that death leads to more of the same. But Christianity teaches that death makes us more. We actually become more alive by dying than we do by living. The Bible teaches that just prior to the judgment, the sanctified souls of believers leave the intermediate state in order to join their bodies, which have been resurrected as glorious, new, and immortal. I realize that this might be catching some of you by surprise. You thought we'd be just fine as spirits. Trust me, you're not alone. But a careful reading of Scripture makes it clear that the resurrection of our bodies is one of the most exciting promises we're given. In fact, it is so wonderful that the writers of the New Testament occasionally look past the other blessings that await us in order to focus on it. And they go to great lengths to defend it. John's first letter was written to refute the Gnostics, a group noted for their denial of the resurrection of the body. And Paul's earliest letter to the Corinthians was directed at a different branch of the same heresy. There, in the 15th chapter of that letter, Paul writes in a particularly forceful way, linking our resurrection bodies to that of Christ. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it's true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. A careful reading of this passage, and others like it, suggest four things. First, matter is good. As C.S. Lewis remarked, God has nothing against matter. He created it. If this study does little else, I hope it kills any latent Gnosticism in your thinking. Please repeat after me. The spiritual is not better than the physical. Both were created good. Both have been corrupted by sin. Both will be fully restored after death. Second, Christ rose from the dead. The event that set the Christian faith in motion was not the mystical appearance of Christ's soul, but the resurrection of his dead body. The battered collection of flesh and blood that had been broken on the cross came back to life in the tomb. Third, Jesus went out of his way to prove that his resurrected body had material substance. It was not just spiritual, and the New Testament teaches that our body will be like his. Luke records the following passage in the 24th chapter of his gospel. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, Why are you troubled, and why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them in his hands and feet. And while they still did not believe in him because of joy and amazement, he asked them, 
Do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of boiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. Jesus asked the disciples to touch him and to bring him food. He did this in order to prove that he was alive. Paul then reinforces the idea that our resurrected bodies will be like his when he writes, But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Fourth, this was the teaching of the early church. In the event that you need any additional support, you can turn to the earliest and most important statements of faith, all of which affirm the resurrection of our body. The last paragraph of the Apostles' Creed reads, I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. The Belgic Confession affirms that, All the dead shall be raised out of the earth and their souls joined and united with their proper bodies in which they formerly lived. And finally, the Westminster Confession, which is perhaps the clearest of them all, reads, At the last day, such as are found alive shall not die, but be changed, and all the dead shall be raised up with the selfsame bodies and none other, although with different qualities, which shall be united again to their souls forever. Clearly, the resurrection of the body is at the center of the Christian faith. Our hope is not simply for a spiritual rebirth, but for the glorious restoration of the whole person, body and soul. What will our glorified bodies be like? So, what kind of body will we have after our resurrection? Will it look the same? Will we be free from the illness or injuries that caused our death? Will we be like angels? The short answer is that we're not given a very detailed description of what we can expect, but we're told enough to know that nothing we can imagine comes close to the wonder of our heavenly bodies. Those who make a careful study of this topic end up emphasizing two things. First, that what comes next will be directly linked to what already is. And second, that what comes next is gloriously different. Or to state this more forcefully, we will be enough like who we presently are to be recognizable to others, but so dramatically different that we will hardly recognize ourselves. One writer suggests that we will radiate God's glory so fully that we will glow like a light bulb. Another says we should expect to be more physical, not less, thereby allowing us to experience a quality of life that is richer, deeper, and more full than before. In his sermon, The Weight of Glory, C.S. Lewis indirectly comments on what we might expect. He writes, It may be possible for each of us to think too much of his own potential glory hereafter, but it is hardly possible for him to think too often or too deeply about that of his neighbor. The load or weight or burden of my neighbor's glory should be laid daily on my back, a load so heavy that only humility can carry it, and the backs of the proud will be broken. It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses, to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you may talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship or else a horror and corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. 
Can we expect to be healed? Can those burdened with severe impairments in this life be expected expect to be free from them in the next? Psalm 103.2 has one answer to that question. There we read, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits, who pardons all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases. Given that the curses of sin will be gone and our bodies will be glorified, it seems safe to assume that we will be free of every defect and impairment. In other words, sickness, deformity, temptation, disease, and mental impairment will not exist. However, it is likely that we will define beauty and perfection a bit differently than we do now. After all, Christ's resurrection body bore some of the wounds of the cross. It may be that those things we see as scars today will be badges of honor in the future. All we can say for certain is that we will be wonderfully restored and whole people in ways we can hardly imagine at the moment, or at least those who are in Christ. I have been focused on the positive side of the ledger. There is more to the story, for we must also account for the bodies of the condemned. Scripture does not tell us much about them other than to note that a similar resurrection occurs and their bodies are restored for a very different type of eternity, one not orchestrated by Christ the Redeemer, but by Christ the Judge. The Final Judgment The next event in the grand scheme of history will be the Day of Judgment. After receiving our new bodies, we will each stand before the throne of Christ, where we will be judged by Him, and then hear the proclamation of our eternal destiny. Some refer to this event as the dreaded reckoning, others as our final exam. Kierkegaard called it the audit of eternity. John refers to it as the last day. Luke simply calls it that day. You may call it whatever you wish, but it's prudent to recognize just how significant the decision rendered on that day will be. Not much attention is given to final judgment in today's culture, at least not directly. In fact, some might even say that while the idea has never been popular, it's as unpopular now as it's ever been. But that's not entirely true. God has wired us for justice, and if you learn to listen, you'll hear subtle appeals for ultimate justice made all the time. They're present in the child's cry, that's not fair, and in the righteous anger we feel when the wicked oppress the weak. We long for it whenever we're wronged, and we fear it each time our conscience convicts us. We actually want to live in a world that makes sense. We want to know that one day all accounts will be settled, and so it should not surprise us that one day they will. The Bible tells us about that day in several places. The most complete description is found in Revelation chapter 20. There we read, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. Earth and sky fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what he had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. What do we need to know about final judgment? This passage and a few others suggest that there are at least five items of note. One, Jesus will serve as our judge. 
In Acts 10, the Apostle Peter tells us that Christ was ordained by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. In John 5, we're told that he was given authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul writes, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. There will be no jury of peers on the final day. Jesus Christ alone will render judgment. 2. Every person will stand trial. John reports that the dead, great and small, shall be included. In Romans 14, Paul announces that we shall all stand before Christ. He tells the Corinthians that we must all appear, that each one may receive what is due to him for the things done while in the body. You might have been hoping to call in sick that day, but that there will be no excused absences for this final exam. Everyone, Christian and non-Christian alike, will stand to offer an account of their life. In fact, Peter makes it clear that even the angels will be judged on that day. Three, the review will be comprehensive. Every aspect of our lives will be assessed. Previously unnoticed acts of kindness will be celebrated. Secret sins will be exposed. Jesus tells us that the review will include every thought entertained, every word spoken, and every action we performed. No human biographer can document a life as thoroughly as God will document yours. Four, the review will be fair. Not every assessment is. Sometimes the examiner asks poorly worded questions or is biased by, what the, test take, by the test taker's appearance. Some judges can be bribed. Others assumed we know things we were never told. But the review we will receive from God will be perfect in every way, for it will not only include everything we've ever done, it will do so from Christ's vantage point of perfect knowledge. He knows us. That includes every hardship we ever faced, every advantage we've been given. Those who stand outside of a saving relationship with Christ have every reason to fear a fair test, but no reason to fear an unfair one. 5. The assessment will be final. There is no court of appeals. Jesus is the highest judge in the universe, and the decision he reaches will stand. Questions about judgment. I suspect that some of you are feeling unsettled about all of this. You have no desire to stand before a holy God while your life is reviewed, not when the stakes are this high. It's not that you question his right to judge, and you're sure he will be fair. But, well, that's the problem. You know enough to know that you can't pass a fair test. And some of what I've shared, especially secret sins being exposed and our works matter, has you sideways. You have questions. Let me see if I can answer a few of them. First, is it possible for a Christ follower to fail the test, to be turned away from heaven? The answer to this question depends entirely upon what we mean by a Christ follower. Given what Christ says in Matthew 25, it's clear that some who think they are Christians are not. There we read, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? 
he will reply, I tell you the truth. Whatever you did not do for the one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. If some who called him Lord will be sent to eternal punishment, that means the answer to the question, is it possible for a Christ follower to be denied entrance into heaven, is yes. Two, is that because our lives don't measure up? Our, our works are not good enough. I can hear the thoughts racing through the minds of some of you right now. Wait a minute. Our works matter. Salvation is by works. That's why we're judged. I thought we were saved by grace through faith. I thought salvation was a gift. In fact, I thought it was impossible for us to earn salvation. Now you're saying that our works count. Which is it? It's both. Salvation is by grace. Our eternal destiny hinges on our relationship to Christ. If we have exchanged our sin for his righteousness, then our name is recorded in the Lamb's book of life, and we are welcome in heaven. If we have not, then we stand condemned. Nothing that we can do helps us earn our way back to God. We do not contribute to our salvation. However, this is not the whole story. Our works matter in at least two ways. First, they confirm that we have been redeemed. James tells us that faith without works is dead. Good works confirm that the faith we are counting on is actually alive. Our works do not contribute to our salvation, but they substantiate it. Second, just as there are degrees of punishment in hell, there are degrees of reward in heaven. And these rewards are based on our works. Jesus establishes this idea in the parable of the talents, and Paul develops it in 1 Corinthians 3. There we read, If any man builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, his work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. If what he has built survives, he will receive his reward. If it is burned up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. 3. Is it possible for an unbeliever to earn their way to heaven? No. While some who deny Christ lead far more exemplary lives than some who profess faith in him, we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. No one other than Christ is as holy as the Father, and that is the entrance requirement. 4. Will my secret sins be broadcast for all to see? In Luke 12, we're told, There is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed, or hidden that will not be made known. What you have said in the dark will be heard in the daylight, and what you have whispered in the ear in the inner rooms will be proclaimed from the roofs. Paul makes the same point in his letters to both the Corinthians and the Colossians. Should we assume that everything we've done, both good and bad, will be on display for all to see? Thankfully, no. Christ paid our debt in full. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, our sins will not be brought up again. It is best to think of the day of judgment as a time in which believers will be rewarded and unbelievers will be punished. In fact, followers of Christ can actually look forward to the day of judgment as a time to celebrate both the mercy and justice of Christ. 5. If people have different degrees of reward in heaven, won't some people end up jealous of others? 
No, it's hard for us in our present state, crippled by sin and self-centered as we are, to imagine what life will be like sin-free and God-centered. But among our great joys will be the successes of others. There is no reason to expect that anyone will feel anything other than joy in heaven. Jonathan Edwards suggested that though some vessels may be smaller than others, each will be filled to overflowing. Hell. So far we've considered what the Bible has to say about death, the intermediate state, the resurrection, and judgment. We now come to the most difficult topic of all, one that does not fit our modern sensibilities. The topic is hell. That is, the place of eternal conscious punishment for the wicked. Hell is the English translation of three different Greek terms, the most common being Gehenna, a word initially used to refer to a valley outside of the south wall of Jerusalem. It was here that children were sacrificed to Moloch during the reign of, of one of Israel's most pagan kings. By the time Christ used the term, the ritual killings were a distant memory, but the valley, which had never been able to shake the stigma of evil, had been turned into the city dump. It was a vile, smoldering wasteland strewn with garbage, refuse, and even occasional unburied bodies of criminals. Christ leveraged all that was detestable about the term Gehenna when he referred to it as the place where sinners suffered under the wrath of God. And he made it clear that this is one of the two options we have for eternity. If the polls are right, most Americans believe in hell. I have my doubts. We hear the word hell a lot. Jack, how in hell are you doing? We had a hell of a time. That scared the hell out of me. But I seldom see the anguish or fear I would expect to find in someone who believes in anything close to the biblical description of hell. My experience is that people go out of their way to avoid thinking about it. And when the topic is pressed upon them, they either react with anger, disbelief, and denial are so many qualifications that what they believe in is not really hell. In fact, there are at least four alternate views of hell in circulation today. One, hell is a party. The first is the view held by some collegians, chiefly those who are drinking copious amounts of beer. When asked to share their views of life after death, they state that they actually hope that they go to hell because that is where all their friends will be. And besides, they offer... Who'd want to spend eternity with a bunch of self-righteous killjoys in heaven? This perspective is not the product of lots of careful thought, but I do hear it from time to time. Two, hell is not that bad. The second view is less extreme than the first. Those in this camp do not go so far as to say that they'd prefer hell over heaven, but they essentially say that hell will not be that bad. Don't take things too literally, they warn. The descriptions are all hyperbole. I believe they're half right. Most scholars argue that phrases such as lake of fire, bottomless pit, and utter darkness should be understood as hyperbole, in part because they cannot be reconciled with each other. Fire gives off light. How could there be a lake of fire and utter darkness at the same time? But suggesting that these images are symbolic does not mean they're not horrible. What those in this camp fail to remember is that writers lapse into hyperbole when they're unable to explain just how bad or how good something is with the words available. That means they use phrases like lake of fire because it is as awful a thing as they can imagine, but reality is worse. Three, everyone goes to heaven. 
A third group takes the sting out of hell by contending that no one ends up there. Satan, Judas, and Hitler aside, people either get a second chance to accept Christ after they die, or they work off their debt through some period of suffering and are then allowed to go to heaven. The theological term for the belief that everyone is saved is universalism. Four, hell is not eternal. The fourth way people soften the horror of hell is by arguing that those who go there will not suffer forever. They will endure a just punishment. In other words, they will suffer for some period of time, but eventually they will simply cease to exist. Whereas the second view took the hell out of forever, this view, called either annihilationism or conditional immortality, takes the forever out of hell. Let me start by saying that I understand the reasons people choose one of these options. They have tremendous emotional appeal. And let me also note, I have no desire to enter into the debates over hell that rage among theologians. But I must say this, as much as I might like to accept these positions, I do not believe that these views accurately reflect what the New Testament teaches. And as a follower of Christ, I cannot help but be haunted by four unavoidable observations. First, the most frightening descriptions of hell come from Christ. It is Jesus who instructs us about hell. Eleven of the twelve times the term Gehenna is used in the New Testament, it is because Christ is talking about it. And virtually all of the unthinkable metaphors, everlasting fire, outer darkness, unquenchable thirst, weeping and gnashing of teeth, they all come from him. The words of Stephen King are amusing children's stories compared to what Christ said awaits those who die in their sins. Second, Jesus implies that hell is a real place. According to Christ, hell is not a state of mind or a mystical, ethereal neverland, but a real place. Theologian Peter Kreeft is so persuaded of this that he wrote the following in the flyleaf of his book, Everything You Always Wanted to Know About Heaven But Never Dreamed of Asking. Quote, Throughout this book, I have insisted on capitalizing heaven and hell. My justification is that these places are quite as real and substantial as Kokomo and Timbuktu. Third, Jesus instructed us to go to any length to avoid hell. In the Sermon on the Mount, Christ says, Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to sin. Such things must come, but woe to the man through whom they come. If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. Can you imagine more forceful language. Christ actually suggests that we're better off blinding ourselves than risking hell. In Luke 12, he makes a related statement. There we read, I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after the killing of the body, has the power to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you to fear him. In other words, Christ tells us that we need not fear those who can kill us, but we should fear God in part because he can send us to hell. I understand that you may not want to think about this topic and that you do not like it or that you do not believe you're at risk of spending eternity apart from God. But I feel honor bound to point out 
that while we may be lax in our response to hell, Jesus was not. He warns us as forcefully as he can that we should do all that we can to avoid it. Questions about hell. Wait a minute. Mike, do you mean to tell me that you actually believe in hell? You think it's a real place. You believe that a loving God would allow people to go there, would actually send people there. Don't you think we deserve a second chance? Doesn't eternal punishment seem unspeakably cruel to you? How do you expect me to be happy in heaven if I know that someone I love is in hell? If you've avoided thinking about hell in the past, you probably have a long list of questions. I understand. I have a few of my own. And for what it's worth, I do not like this doctrine at all. In fact, I line up behind C.S. Lewis when he states that there is no doctrine he'd more willingly remove than this one. But let me remind you, the question does not hinge on what we like. The question before us is not, what would we like to be true? The question is, what is true? And the one who is able to answer that question is Christ. Hell may be a difficult doctrine to embrace at the moment, especially when our minds are still riddled with sin. But if we believe that Jesus is God, we must believe that he knows better than we do about what happens when we die. I actually believe that in the end, hell will make perfect sense. Right now, we lack an appreciation for the glorious holiness of God and the cosmic awfulness of sin. Right now, we have more in common with Hitler than with Christ. When we see things clearly, we will not be offended by hell. Instead, we will marvel at how perfectly just, merciful, and altogether good God is. The final point I care to make on this topic, I'll frame as a question. What more could God do? God the Father sent God the Son in order to pay our moral debt. That action allows us to enter into a relationship with our Creator and put hell behind us. Jesus Christ paid the burden of our sin. A just world demands that justice prevail. God cannot dismiss wickedness and evil and remain just. And so he does all we could ever ask him to do. He pays off our debt. What more could he do than what he has done? If there's any way we can help you on your spiritual journey, please contact us at cclf.org or email us at fenceposts at cclf.org.